welcome, ankle biters. You've stumbled on the far, far, far-fetched fables, the home of tall tales, old chestnuts, fish stories, and other unassorted yarns. We mostly cater to the young'uns here, but you grown-ups can have a listen, too. If you have a mind to, tap on the follow button on your podcast app or find us on the Facebook. In the meantime, turn off the TV, put down the cell phone, get yourself a glass of warm milk, and settle in for some old-time storytelling. Tonight's episode... Chapter 14, Paul Bunyan's Farm. All during these later years of his lumbering, Paul Bunyan had owned a fine farm about which many interesting tales are told. Here it was that his family stayed while he was in the woods. Here it was also that the great logger spent most of his time every year after the spring drive was over and up until it was time to get into the woods again in the fall. Here, during the summer, he would reward Babe, Bessie, and his other animals by turning them out into his rich pastures. Paul amused himself occasionally by conducting various experiments with growing things. Once he tried raising macaroni, planting nearly his whole farm in macaroni, but there must have been something wrong with his seed. When his macaroni came up, it kept on growing and growing and growing until half of just one stalk would have fed a section gang for a week. Finally, it stopped growing and ripened off to the prettiest creamy macaroni color anyone ever saw. But that didn't cheer Paul up any, for he thought he was going to lose a lot of money on his macaroni because of its being so big. Johnny Inkslinger saved him from that, however. Johnny wrote to all the big factories back east and kept after them until he sold every one of them a stock of Paul's macaroni for a smokestack. In addition to the great logger's pet animals, which have been mentioned before, he had another one, which he kept on the farm and never used in any of his logging work. This was the Roan Colt. Paul had high hopes at first making a racehorse out of the colt, and in order to give him the proper training, he built a big racetrack on the farm. This track was only five miles around, as Paul thought that was enough distance to start with. But the colt was able to run on it only two days. When he first started out, he ran so fast that he kicked dirt back in his own face, and before two days were up, he had worn the track down to such a depth that water was running into it in great streams. After that, Paul had to use his racetrack for a duck pond, and he had to give up all of his racing ambitions for the roan colt, for fear the animal would likewise ruin every other track he might run on. Paul's daughter, however, made good use of the ruined racetrack. Teeny, as she was named, had charge of all the poultry around the farm, and she was so smart about her work that she made quite a bit of money from it. Her daddy gave her the racetrack for a duck pond, and her flock of ducks was the finest that could be found anywhere. At first, the ducks laid eggs of just ordinary duck egg size, but Teeny fooled them into doing much better than that. She got Ole to help her, and together they chipped out a big stone in the shape of an enormous big egg, so perfect that it would have fooled anyone, 
even a duck. Now cut that out! The only flaw about it was that the stone wasn't quite as big as the egg started out to be, so that the ends were flat on account of having not enough stone to round them off. Teeny was a little worried at first for fear that this defect might keep her plan from working. But later it proved of great advantage. When this big egg was put into the duck house where all could see it, it certainly aroused a lot of excitement. The ducks quacked the matter over and over among themselves until finally they began to get quite jealous of any duck that could lay an egg like that. Their duck pride would not allow them to be outdone in a matter of that kind. You're despicable! And so before very long, they were all laying real eggs just a little bigger than the imitation one. Okay, have it your way. They even copied the flat ends, which was a good thing, for otherwise one of those eggs could never have been taken through the doorway. Paul always admired big things, and he gave Teeny a lot of praise for her success with her ducks. The feature that Paul Bunyan's farm is most famed for, however, is his great corn stalk. He had a big cornfield on the farm, and all the corn planted there behaved in the usual way, excepting for one grain that must have been of a very special variety. When this grain sprouted, it grew so fast that by the time Paul got home that spring, no one could see the top of it. Paul decided that the best thing to do would be to get rid of it before it grew any taller, and so he gave the orders to the seven axemen to cut it down. They first tried sawing it down with the great cross-cut saw, but it was growing upwards so fast all the time that it just jerked the saw right out of their hands. Then they tried chopping it down with their axes, but it kept on growing faster than ever, and they could never hit it twice in the same place so as to take out a chip. By the time they could draw back their axes and strike a second time, the marker of their first stroke would have grown out of sight above their heads. Paul began to see that the matter was getting serious, and he tried to think of some other way of getting the best of the troublesome stalk of corn. At last he had an idea that looked like the proper one, and he called all his helpers to him to work it out. Big Charlie, he said to the oldest and biggest of the seven axemen, I want you to take a big coil of strong rope and climb up the stalk until you get near the top. Then tie one end of the rope to the stock, drop the other end down so we can all grab hold of it, and then we'll all bend the whole thing down to the ground by pulling on the rope. I'm thinking that I'll bury the top part, and then let the stock do all the growing it wants to right back into the earth. Then, if it keeps on growing as fast as it has been doing so far, the Chinese will have to worry about it instead of us. All right, boss, if you say so, answered Big Charlie rather doubtfully. I'm game, but it doesn't look like a very good plan to me. With some grumbling and many pessimistic shakes of his head, he fixed up a big coil of rope, swung it over his shoulder, and started climbing up the stalk. He finally got to the top all right, but by that time the stalk had grown so much that the rope would no longer reach the ground. I knew it wouldn't work, growled Big Charlie to himself. I guess now I had better be getting back down to the ground and tell the boss that he'd do best to get either a new idea or a longer rope.
Disgusted with the whole plan, he started to slide back down the stalk. But to his surprise and anger, it kept growing upward faster than he could slide the other way. No matter how fast he went down, he was still going up all the time, for the stalk of corn kept carrying him higher and higher and farther away from the ground and food. Down below, Paul had waited for the rope to hang down within his reach, and when he saw it, with its lower end dangling far above his head, he began to have a suspicion of what had happened. When many hours had passed and Big Charlie did not return to earth, he feared for the safety of the axe man, and presently figured out the reason for his not appearing. It was well that he did so, or else the man up the stalk <clears throat> might have starved to death even before he reached the ground again. He must be getting mighty hungry by this time, said Paul to the others. I'll have to get food to him some way before he starves. Jaw boy, just you run into the house and get my big shotgun for me. And within a few minutes, the little chore boy laid the weapon in his hands. The gun was of such a tremendous size that none but he dared fire it. And it had to have a tremendous load in order to perform properly. Usually, Paul loaded it with a wash tub full of blasting powder and a wheelbarrow load of bricks. But this time, instead of the bricks, he rammed it full of dogod biscuits. Then he took careful aim up the stalk and shot the biscuits up to Charlie. He kept on feeding Charlie in this way until the ears of corn began to develop on the big stalk. One morning, when he came out to shoot the unfortunate axeman's breakfast up to him, he found a number of fresh corn cobs scattered on the ground around the roots of the stalk. As all the grains were cleanly gnawed off the cobs, he knew that Charlie had found food of his own, and so was in no further danger of starvation. It was about this time that the commanding officer from the United States Naval Station on Lake Michigan came to see Paul. He was all dressed up in his fine uniform, with a lot of ribbons pinned on his chest, which he stuck out like a powder pigeon when he walked. Are you the owner of this corn stock? He asked, very importantly, when he came up to the big logger. I sure wish someone else would claim it, Paul laughed in reply. Well, sir. I have orders for you to cut it down at once, said the officer, not knowing that Paul was trying his hardest to figure out a way to do the very thing. The big logger just grinned at his visitor. As far as that goes, he answered, your orders have nothing to do with me. Not even the president himself could make me cut that stock down until I get ready to do so. A look of deep concern spread over the officer's face. But the roots of this cornstalk go down deep and spread out so far that they reach in under Lake Michigan on the east and up under Lake Superior on the north. And they are sucking up all the water so fast that navigation is being seriously interfered with. Unless the stock is cut down and that at once, very soon no boats at all will be able to run on any of the lakes. Paul nodded his head in agreement. You didn't let me finish what I started out to say, he told the officer. I said that nothing could make me cut that stock down until I got ready to do so. But I'll be ready and mighty glad to get rid of it just as soon as I can figure out a way how to do away with the pesky thing. I have tried cutting it down, but it grows too fast for us to make any impression on it.
and he explained all that had been done. Suddenly his eyes brightened, and a new thought came to him. Ah! I've got the right plan now! he exclaimed, and strode over to where Ole, the big Swede, had just staggered into sight carrying one of Babe's shoes toward the smithy. Now one of the great blue ox's shoes was just like a horseshoe, except that it was many thousand times bigger, and the one Ole was carrying weighted him down so heavily that he sank to his knees in the ground at every step. It took a whole carload of iron just to put the new cocks on a shoe for Babe. And whenever the great blue ox had to be reshod on all four feet, a new iron mine had to be opened. Thus, what Paul had in mind was perfectly possible. The great logger grabbed the big shoe from Ole and carried it back to where the officer was standing. I'll put this shoe around the stock like a ringer around the peg in playing horseshoes, he explained, and then twist the ends together so tightly that the flow of sap up the stock will be shut off. That should make it stop growing so fast and perhaps give us a chance to cut it down. He proceeded to do the thing as he had said, but there wasn't enough room left after the shoe had been passed around the stock to allow the ends to be twisted together as he had outlined. However, Paul thought the principle of the plan was the proper one for solving the problem, and he looked around for something else he could use. There was an old logging railroad within ten miles or so of his farm, and from it he ripped up a number of miles of steel track, pulled loose the ties, and twisted several strands of the track together into a long cable. The naval officer was the most astonished man in the world as he watched Paul Bunyan pass this great cable around the base of the big cornstalk and knot it into place very quickly and tightly. Now, said the big logger, that ought to shut off the sap and slow down its growth. They all waited breathlessly, their eyes straining to see if they could find some evidence of the stalk's growth having stopped. Suddenly, the big Swede gave a loud yell, jumped high in the air as he clicked his heels together and shouted, She been stop, yumpin' yiminy. We cut her down quick now, I betcha. And he ran wildly looking for an axe. Surely enough, the cable had done its work and the cornstalk had at last stopped growing. Paul was fully as delighted as the others and he set his men to chopping away at the big cornstalk while he worked out another problem, that of saving the axe man who had been up the stock all summer. He soon figured out a way whereby Big Charlie could be gotten to the ground before the choppers finished their task. He got out his big shotgun again, but instead of loading it this time with biscuits, he crammed into its barrel a big bundle which was wrapped tight like a ball. Luckily, a circus was playing nearby, and using its biggest tent, he constructed a parachute, which he now proceeded to shoot up the stock to the axe man. Along with the parachute, he sent a note explaining the situation and warning Big Charlie to take a flight at once. So now, feeling sure that Charlie was safe, Paul urged his men on in greater efforts. He sent Ole five miles away to look up through a powerful telescope at the top of the stock and send word to him at once upon seeing in which direction it would fall after the cutting had weakened it. 
He wanted to know which way it would fall in order to warn all the people in his path and direct them to safety. Finally, the little chore boy rushed into view, breathing hard from having run so fast. The big Swede says the top is beginning to lean toward the west, he panted. It was well that it had chosen that direction in which to fall, as there were fewer people to the westward which it might endanger in its rush to the ground. The stalk began to fall, and there could be heard the sound of the wind whistling through its leaves and tassel far, far above. As soon as his ears caught this noise, Paul sprang into his wagon, to which Jerry and Jenny, his mule team, were hitched, and impatiently waiting to go. He gave them their heads, and away they galloped to the west, almost as fast as lightning. So fast did they go, that they could be seen only when Paul slowed them down to a walk when passing the word of warning to someone in the danger zone. A mighty ride that was, and one that should be more wildly famous. For two and a half days, the big stock continued to fall before it finally hit the ground. After the dust had cleared away, Paul sent men out with surveying instruments to measure its size, but they were unable to get the exact and original figures. In falling, most of it had been raveled out by the rushing of the wind, and the few miles of it that remained intact were a poor indication in determining its exact size. Some idea of its hugeness, however, can be had from knowing what kind of ears of corn it had on it. One ear was driven by the force of the fall right straight down into the earth. It stuck there so tight that Paul couldn't get it out even when he hitched the great blue ox to it. He brought up his mule team to help Babe pull, and when the three animals tugged away altogether, something just had to give way. But even then, only the cob of the ear was pulled out of the ground, leaving the grains still in the earth. It is said that the ear made a hole in the ground sixty feet across, and that those loose grains that were left after the cob was pulled out filled this to such a depth that no one ever did find out how far it went down into the earth. Luckily, none of the grains ever sprouted to make other cornstalks like their parent. Well, that's certainly a relief. Big Charlie floated with his parachute for two weeks before he finally landed, and then he came to earth a thousand miles from where Paul's farm was. He endured many hardships before he finally got back to where he had started from, and by that time he was so angry over what had happened to him that he made up his mind to leave Paul Bunyan. The big logger offered him a lot of inducements to stay, but he would not change his mind. His six cousins all stuck by him, and together they quit in a huff. If that's too soon, he can leave in a minute and a huff. They marched away down the road with their turkeys on their shoulders and never a look backward and were never heard of again. They were mighty woodsmen and their absence was keenly felt by their former boss. Another thing happened that helped make Paul anxious to give up his farm. Most of the corn he had raised that year was popcorn. One day, after it was all harvested and put in the granary, the building accidentally caught on fire and popped all of the corn stored there. The flying white grains flew all over the farm until they covered the ground three or four feet deep, or perhaps even more. It didn't seem to hurt Babe, but all the other animals on the farm, Bessie, the mule team, the roan colt, and all the others, 
thought they were having an extraordinarily severe snow blizzard and froze to death. Elmer, the moose terrier, was in the house while the popping was going on, and so he was also saved. The loss of all his animals was quite a blow to Paul, and his loss disgusted him with farming. Only Babe and Elmer were left to him out of all of his other pets, and he decided to delay no longer about moving to the Pacific coast. The seven axe men were lost. His farm was worn out. The timber was cut, and he was ready to hunt out a new and wilder part of the country. So, with his wife, Tini and John, his son and daughter, a few of his old followers, and Babe and Elmer, he set out westward. Ole, the big Swede, was faithful to Paul and accompanied him into the Pacific States, and so did the little chore boy and Johnny Inkslinger. Also, some of his former workmen followed after him later on and joined his western crew, glad to work once more under the greatest boss in the woods. Well, that certainly is a shame. Paul couldn't patch it up with the Axemen, but that's how it goes sometimes. You can't please everybody. If, on the other hand, you're enjoying this telling of Paul Bunyan, why not give us a five-star review or send us an email to farfarsfables at gmail.com. Send a suggestion for a favorite book you'd like to hear. Now go on outside and play, you little boot scooters. Far, far.